You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning. Good to see you today. Is anybody else just really glad to see the sun? Ooh, man. I can only go so many days. And uh, last week was getting a little bit too gloomy for me. So, well, if uh, you weren't here with us last week, um, we talked about the separation of Abram and his nephew Lot in Genesis 13. And in talking about that, I made this statement. When we try to get as close to sin as we can without falling into it, like here's sin and I think, well, I'm not going to dive in, but I'll just maybe stick my toe in the pool. You know, when we try to get as close to sin as possible um, without falling into it, rather than running as far away from it as we can, rather than running toward holiness and righteousness, we always wind up being sucked into the devastation. We always wind up somehow um, being sucked into the effects of sin. Um, This morning, we're going to see the evidence of this through Lot. But what we're also going to see is that when we decide to live For God's glory and God's kingdom, we will have to say no over and over and over again to the pursuit of our glory and the world's kingdom. And it will not be a one-time thing. As I said, it will be over and over and over. And we will see this through Abram. Um, And I want to make this statement to you today that as we do this, the world will try to bargain with us for the glory of God. The world's going to try to bargain with you and bargain with me. Like, hey, I'd like to sell you this, but now it'll cost you God's glory. Uh, the, The world wants us to sell out the kingdom of God. And we have to make a decision about how we feel about that. And as followers of Christ, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, there should be nothing more important to us than the glory of the king. As citizens of the kingdom of God, there should be nothing more important to us than the glory of God. Now, again, in Genesis 13, Abram and Lot separate, and I want you to look with me as a refresher of what happens. Abram says to his nephew, hey, there's, there's too many of us in this small place. You pick where you want to go. And Lot decides to take the entire Jordan Valley. And it says in verse 12 that Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So at this point, Lot chooses to move his tent as close to Sodom as he can get it without becoming a a resident, all right? And now what happens is you turn the page, you turn the chapter, and in Genesis 14, 12, we see that that Lot is now dwelling in Sodom. He's dwelling in Sodom. And he's going to reap the consequences. 
See, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities right there next to it were rampant in sin and wickedness. And when this is the case, uh, you begin to make enemies. Sodom and Gomorrah had targets on their chest. And it was not all because of their sin and their wickedness. There's something geographically you have to understand about these cities. At that point in time, when you look on a map at Mesopotamia, what we now know as Syria, Iran, and you look at Egypt, countries that wanted to trade with one another, guess where they all had to go through to get to one another? They had to go through what we know as Israel. If you want to know one of the reasons why still to this day everybody wants to blow Israel off the map is because they have to go through there to get to one another. That's one of the reasons, all right? So what happens is finally these four Mesopotamian kings decide, you know what, we've had it with these stupid, wicked cities. We're going to do something about it. And they form this coalition and they decide we're going to attack. And that's what they do. And they come after Sodom and Gomorrah and the three other cities right there around it. And you think, well, that's going to be four on five. That shouldn't be a, really a fair fight. Oh, it's always a fair fight when you have the element of sneak attack. All right? So they begin pushing these kings into what's known as the Sedim Valley, which probably today is actually underneath the Dead Sea. But I want you to see when this happens, we begin to see what the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are made out of. Look with me in Genesis 14, verse 10, which tells us the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. These are like tar pits, okay? And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into the bitumen pits and the rest fled to the hill country. I want to make sure that you don't give any benefit of the doubt to any of these kings and that you understand what happens. When it says they fell into the pits, this doesn't mean that they're running along and, oh, they missed the pit. They fell in. They knew where these pits were. What this means is these kings would rather purposely, intentionally dive into a tar pit, and I'll take my chances of whatever happens down there, than stay up on the ground and fight. And the ones that didn't dive into tar pits ran into the hills and hid in the caves. You know what happens when kings and their armies run and duck for cover? The people reap the consequences. And it tells us in verse 11, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions. They also took Lot the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and all of his possessions and they went their way. So not good. Sodom and Gomorrah have been sacked and Lot got sacked with them. But luckily someone escapes and comes and finds Abram and tells him, your nephew has been taken. So look with me in Genesis 14, 14, and this is kind of where we're going to launch from. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night 
he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram and his men went a really long way on foot to rescue Lot and all the people. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and all of the women and all of the people. Now, I want you to remember, not long ago, um, Abram had been taken advantage of by his nephew because Abram said, hey, Lot, you know, point, pick where you want to go, pick what land you want, and I'll take the other. And as I said a moment ago, Lot chooses to take the entire Jordan Valley, but he also takes Sodom with it. He says, I'm going to move myself right on into there. And you have to look at this and think, this was a little bit of an opportunity to think, you know what? Lot just got what was coming to him. You know, we have the term poetic justice. There's some poetic justice going on here, right? He chose to settle in Sodom. Abram should let him reap the consequences, right? Well, apparently not according to Abram. That's not how Abram works. Why? Why not? Well, on the one hand, I think there's definitely a little bit of family honor going here. And when I say family honor, don't confuse what I mean like Hatfields and McCoys kind of thing, like nobody messes with my family. But more of a thing of, look, this is my flesh and blood. When something like this has happened to them, I can't just sit by and pretend it's not going on. I think that definitely had something to do with this. But I think possibly even more than that, Abram was very obviously listening to and being led by the Spirit of God. Why do I say this? Well, in the flesh, which you and I, we tend to to initially sometimes think like that. In the flesh, it seems a lot like Abram allows Lot to walk all over him. When you read Genesis 13 anyways. It's like, man, when's Abram just going to stiffen up and tell Lot, go take a hike, man. Get on out of here. It, it looks and seems like he's let Lot walk all over him. But you know what? When you read the Gospels, it seems a lot like Jesus let those guards walk all over him when he was arrested and let those soldiers walk all over him when they were beating him and whipping him and mocking him. Seems a lot like he let Pilate walk all over him. But we know different, don't we? We know that no one took Jesus' life from him, but he laid it down. In the flesh, it may seem like this, but catch this. Don't mistake Abram's meekness for weakness. Don't do that with Jesus either, mind you. But don't mistake Abram's meekness for weakness. Now, that statement doesn't do us a lot of good if we're going, yeah, what the heck is meekness? What is meekness? Well, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of the earth. When the Bible uses the word meek, what it's talking about is humble patience. Humble patience, even in the midst of being provoked. Humble patience, even in the midst of provocation. Now, what's the definition of weakness? Weakness is a lack of strength, an inadequate or defective quality. Some of us in this room, I'm not pointing any fingers, have a weakness when it comes to caffeine, don't we? I have a lack of strength. I must have it. How many of you this morning have already partaken? Come on now, join the club. And the rest of you are sitting there in judgment, aren't you? Losers. Well, you got something else, okay? Don't mistake meekness for weakness. They're not even close to being the same. And in fact, you cannot be meek and be weak. Because it takes an enormous amount of strength and courage to have humble patience, especially in the midst of being provoked. Abram wasn't weak. Abram wasn't let Lot walk all over him. Abram was walking with and trusting God with the whole situation. So now in this moment, when our flesh thinks, well, Abram should have just let Lot get what was coming to him, Abram sees this crisis in his nephew's life, gathers all his men and goes after these kings, defeats them, rescues Lot, rescues everything and everyone from Sodom and brings them back home. Awesome story, powerful ending. That was great, wasn't it? It's a great story. And then you realize that's just the middle. This is like intermission. Because now something else happens. In verse 17, we're told that after Abram defeats these kings and is coming back, the king of Sodom went out into the valley, the king's valley, to meet him. The king of Sodom goes out to meet him. So going home, here comes Abram and all of his men, and they've got all the people who were kidnapped and all the stuff that was taken and Lot and everybody else. And they're going through the King's Valley and here comes the King of Sodom. Well, know this, that if the King of Sodom came out to meet him, that all of the rest of the people of Sodom would have come out as well. Why? Well, this man went and rescued our friends, our family members. He's bringing back our cows, our gold, all of this stuff. So we're gonna go out to meet him. Did you see the World Series parade this past year when the Cubs won the World Series for the first time in like 2,000 years? I mean, there was a million people through the city of Chicago, ticker tape falling down, you know, it was amazing. And you know, at the end of those parades, somebody like significant always gets up and gives a speech. The players do too, but you know, maybe it's the mayor or the governor. Well, in this case, it would have been the king. They were probably throwing flowers at Abram and his men. His men were probably riding side saddle on their donkeys, waving at the people. And they come to the end and the king's going to give the speech. Well, whatever speech he was going to give, it was going to have to wait. 
Because this other king shows up. In verse 18, it says, and now Melchizedek, the king of Salem shows up and he brings bread and wine. He brings out a feast for Abram and all his men. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek, the king of Salem, shows up and he does what the king of Sodom was going to do. He blesses Abram, but more importantly, he blesses, praises, and gives glory to God. So who is this guy? Who is Melchizedek? Well, he's the king of Salem, we're told. And this is pretty firmly believed to, to be what we now know as Jeru-Salem, Jerusalem, that he was king over this area, this province called Salem. Now, what's significant about him was he wasn't a king and a politician like the king of Sodom and most other kings. He was a king and a priest. You don't hardly ever find that anywhere. And Melchizedek's presence here is of enormous significance because he puts Abram's victory in proper perspective, especially for Abram. You'll notice he didn't come out and do any back slapping or handshaking or baby kissing or politicking. He didn't show up as a politician. He showed up as a priest. And his words were intended to remind Abram that that victory, oh, remember Abram, that actually belongs to God. All of your success, that's a result of God. Here's what the king of Salem, Melchizedek, did in this moment. He put a question in front of Abram without ever even asking it. What are you going to do in this moment, Abram? Your glory, the world's kingdom, they're right here for the taking. Who are you going to give the glory to? And Abram's response is a testimony, not only to his faith in God, but to his agreement with Melchizedek. His gift to the king of Salem is tangible evidence that it was God's glory Abram was most interested in. I want to make sure that you, that we all are grasping what's going on here. Abram is greeted by the king of Sodom. Okay, he's greeted by the king of Sodom, who no doubt is going to heap all kinds of praises upon him. But then in walks this other king. The king of Salem shows up and urges Abram, give all of that glory to God. And so the king of Sodom stands there, probably like a deer in headlights, watching as Abram not only takes all the praise and glory aimed and given to him and gives it all to God, but then he takes a tenth of his stuff and gives it to another king. You just gave my stuff away. Like, what's going on here? 
Well, how about this? What an incredible testimony, what an incredible witness, not only to the glory of God, but to what God thinks about the sinfulness and the wickedness of Sodom. There's this old saying, and I really don't know how old it is, to the victor belongs the spoils. I don't know if that statement had been made or made up at this point, but I know that the idea would have already been around. I say that to say the king of Sodom is already aware of the fact that to the victor belongs the spoils, that, hey, whoever wins the battle gets to keep all the stuff, right? And so now he's already watched Abram give a tenth of his stuff away to another king. So the king of Sodom begins to think, I better lower my expectations and aim for a little bit of a lower target here. So look what he says to Abram in verse 21. So the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Here's what he said in plain English. English. I can't even speak the plain English. Just, just give me back my people and you can keep all the stuff. Now, do you remember what I said just a couple minutes ago? The world always wants to bargain with us for the kingdom of God. Here's a great example. Do you think this is at all tempting for Abram? I, I just went a really, really long way to bring back all this stuff and these people. And really all I did was I was going after my nephew and I got him too. And now the king says, hey, I, I just want my people back. You can keep all the stuff. If you don't think that was at least a little bit tempting for Abram, I think that you're missing the point that Abram was a human being like us. It had to be a little bit tempting, especially in the midst of the irony. Are you grabbing the irony of this? Lot chose the Jordan Valley and as a result moved himself into Sodom. Why? Because he saw all this potential wealth. He essentially hosed his uncle, took advantage of him because he wanted the best. And now here stands Abram who has rescued him and what's Abram holding? All the fortunes of Sodom. All of it. And so when you understand this, you realize that what Abram does next is probably the most shocking thing of all. What he tells the king is, hey man, I I don't want your people, but I don't want your stuff either. Look at verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you would be able to say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And then he says, what my allies want to do, they can decide that for themselves. The first thing I want you to notice is, did you notice how Abram um, 
addresses and speaks of God. He says, I have lifted my hand to God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram in this moment calls God El Elyon, God most high. There are countless names for God throughout the scriptures. The great provider, the great healer, um, Yahweh, on and on and on. But the, the words El Elyon, God Most High, they're found hardly anywhere in the scriptures. You don't find them anywhere. Except a few verses before this. Did you notice that? Go back to Melchizedek who shows up and says, blessed be Abram by who? God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. Abram has been impacted very quickly by Melchizedek, who reminds him of who God truly is. Abram, remember, Every battle that you've won and that you will ever win, that belongs to the Lord. Abram, your name is going to be great. Why? Because of the Lord. I don't know if it happened five minutes before Abram spoke or if it's been going on for five years or whatever. But catch this. Abram had arrived at a place in his life where he was more jealous for the glory of God than for the treasure of this world. And he let the king of Sodom know about it. And see why this is important is because even though he's not here in person, the king of Sodom, I don't know if you realize this, shows up at your door and mine every day. Because the world wants to bargain with us. When we decide to live for God's glory and God's kingdom, we are going to have to say no over and over and over again to the pursuit of our glory and the world's kingdom. The king of Salem showed up at just the right time because this was a crossroad for Abram. Could have gone one of two ways. And Melchizedek shows up and brings this victory into proper perspective. What is that perspective? Well, it's this. While men give glory to men, and men give glory to themselves. Men of God give glory to God. I read this story and I think, man, I could sure as heck use Melchizedek showing up in my day every once in a while. You think maybe you could use the king of Salem show up in your life? Do you realize that he already has? Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. People, there is nothing more powerful than the word of God. Three places in the scriptures we find Melchizedek. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, Hebrews chapter 7. Who is this dude? Verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. 
And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by the translation of his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, which means king of peace. We don't know who his father or his mother is. No one knows of his genealogy. We don't know when he began. We don't have a record of his ending. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So catch this. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Malachi tells us that Jesus Christ is the son of righteousness. Melchizedek's name, the king of Salem, means king of peace. Jesus Christ is our prince of peace. Melchizedek worshipped and honored most high God. Jesus Christ is the son of the most high God. Melchizedek was not a king and a politician. He was a king and a priest. Well, Jesus Christ is the king of kings and has become our great high priest. And we are told here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that because of this, because Jesus has become our great high priest, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is the king of kings. He is our great high priest. Melchizedek showed up at just the right time for Abram. Jesus showed up at just the right time for us. In Romans chapter 5, it says in verse 6 that while we were still weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul says, you know, maybe somebody would die for a righteous person. I don't know, maybe once in a million, somebody might die for a good person. That's not good news to me. Because on my own, I'm not righteous. I'm not even good. But here's some good news for you in verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time, my friends... The king of Salem pointed Abram back to God. Melchizedek points you and I straight to Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. He has become our great high priest. And as the people of his kingdom, we live for the glory of the king. The world is constantly begging and baiting us to come and grow our kingdom, to come and foster the world's kingdom. Our flesh is always trying to bargain and barter with us for the glory of the king. The king of Sodom told Abram, hey man, if you just give me back my people, you can keep all the stuff. And Abram said, Brother, I do not want your people. I went after my nephew, but I don't want your stuff either. 
the stuff of this world wants you. It wants to be wanted. And you and I have to constantly, only through the power of the word of God and the spirit of God, let it go and grasp for the eternal, the things that will matter, the things that will last. I want to ask you this morning, let's just take a moment and and bow our heads. Would you maybe take a moment and pray and ask, Lord, is there any treasure that I'm holding on to right now that's going to slip through my hands? Lord, would you search my heart? Lord, is there any glory or praise that I keep seeking after that it just belongs to you? Lord, would you help us to see if there's any part of our life where we're claiming citizenship in the kingdom of God, yet we're living enslaved to the kingdom of this world? Because, Lord, we just confess to you, we want to live for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord, would you stir in us through your spirit, taking your word and transforming our hearts and our minds and our lives. Would you make us more jealous for your glory than for anything of this world? Jesus Christ said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he'll take care of you. Your heavenly father knows what you need. we thank you that you have showed up in our lives at just the right time. If you're here this morning and um, you don't know Jesus, I just want to tell you that he loves you and gave his life for you. Because every one of us, we came into this world slaves to it. We are slaves to sin. We come in slavery to death. 
And Jesus comes and says, I I want you to be slaves no more. And through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he has defeated sin and death. And there's nothing more that we would love on Sunday, May the 7th, than for you to no longer walk in slavery to sin and death. Paul says in Romans that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In just a moment, we're going to respond together to Jesus. And if you're here and you need somebody to pray with you or you would like to know, man, can can just share with me what it means to put my faith and trust in him. Some of our pastors, elders, leaders are going to be in the back at the tables. They would love to talk with you, pray with you. If you need to come and make the steps and altar or come to the foot of the cross, um, we just encourage you to come. But Lord, we pray that the things that we pray and the things that we sing in these moments, they will be a testament to how we are going to think and how we're going to live when we walk out those doors. And Lord, that we would be a light in the darkness. We just proclaim that you are King of kings, Lord of lords, Your name is above all names. You're the only one worthy of our praise. I want to ask you just to quietly stand to your feet and... Let's respond to the Lord in honesty and obedience in these moments. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.